Chapter 2 Occupy Till I Come And as they heard these things, he added, and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, Therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and to return. And he called his ten servants, and delivered them ten pounds, and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Luke 19, 11-13. These words form an introduction to the parable commonly called the parable of the pounds, and they contain subjects which deserve the prayerful consideration of every true Christian today. There are some parables of which Matthew Henry says with equal quaintness and truth, The key hangs beside the door. The key to understanding the parable is easily found. The Holy Spirit Himself interprets. There's no room left for doubt as to the purpose for which they were spoken. The parable of the pounds is one of these. Luke tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ added and spake a parable because He was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. These words reveal the secret thoughts of our Lord's disciples at this period of His ministry. They were approaching Jerusalem. They gathered from what Jesus had been saying that something remarkable was about to happen. They had a strong impression that one great purpose of His coming into the world was about to be completed. So far, they were right, but as to the precise nature of the event about to happen, they were quite wrong. There are three subjects revealed in this passage of Scripture that appear to be of great importance. I am only going to address the beginning of the parable, but for your meditation I want to direct your attention to the three following points. 1. I will speak of the mistake of the disciples referred to in this passage. 2. I will speak of the present position of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 3. I will speak of the present duty of all who profess to be Jesus Christ's disciples. I pray that God blesses all of you who listen to this, and that you will know to pray for the Spirit to guide you into truth. What was the mistake the disciples made? Let us try to clearly understand what this mistake was, and how today's Christians should feel about this mistake. Our Lord's disciples seem to have thought that the Old Testament promises of Messiah's visible kingdom and glory were about to be immediately fulfilled. They believed, rightly, that He was indeed the Messiah, the Christ of God, but they blindly supposed that He was going at once to take to Himself His great power and to reign gloriously over the earth. This was the essence of their error. They appear to have concluded that now was the day and now the hour when the Redeemer would build up Zion and appear in His glory. Psalm 102, 16 when he would strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and slay the wicked with the breath of his lips. Isaiah 11, 4. When he would assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah. Isaiah 11, 12. When he would take the heathen for his inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession, break his enemies with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 2, 8-9 when He would reign in Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, and before His ancients gloriously. Isaiah 24, 23. 
and when the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven would be given to the saints of the Most High. Daniel 7.27. This appears to have been the mistake into which our Lord's disciples had fallen at the time when He spoke the parable of the pounds. Unquestionably, it was a great mistake. They didn't realize that before all these prophecies could be fulfilled, it was necessary for Christ to suffer. Luke 24:46 He first had to die Their optimistic expectations leaped over the crucifixion and the long parenthesis of time to follow and bounded on to the final glory They didn't see that there was to be a first advent of Messiah to be cut off Daniel 9:26 before the second coming of Messiah to reign They did not perceive that the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law of Moses would first be fulfilled in a better sacrifice and a better high priest, and the shedding of blood more precious than that of bulls and goats. They didn't comprehend that before the glory Christ must be crucified and an elect people gathered out from among the Gentiles by the preaching of the gospel. All these things were dark to them. They grasped part of the prophetic word, but not all. They saw that Christ was to have a kingdom, but they didn't see that He was to be wounded and bruised and made an offering for sin. They understood the end of the second psalm and all of the ninety-seventh and ninety-eighth, but not the beginning of the twenty-second. They understood the eleventh chapter of Isaiah, but not the fifty-third. They understood the dispensation of the crown and the glory but not the dispensation of the cross and the shame. This was their mistake. The disciples cling partly to this mistake even after the crucifixion. You see it in the first days of the church in the time between the resurrection and the ascension. They said, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1, 6. You find it referred to by Paul. Be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2-3 In both these instances you see the same tendency to misunderstand God's purposes to overlook the dispensation of the crucifixion, and to concentrate all thought on the dispensation of the kingdom. In both you see the same tendency to neglect the duties of the present order of things. Those duties are to bear the cross of Christ, to take part in the afflictions of the gospel, to work, to witness, to preach, and to help make disciples. We Gentile believers, however, ought to regard this mistake with kindness and careful thought. We should not consider our Jewish brothers carnal and earthly-minded because of their interpretation of prophecy as if we Gentiles had never made any mistakes at all. I think we have made great mistakes, and it is time to confess it. I believe we have made an error parallel with that of our Jewish brothers an error less fatal in its consequences than theirs, but an error far more inexcusable because we have had more light. If the Jews thought too exclusively of Christ reigning, have not the Gentiles thought too exclusively of Christ's suffering? 
If the Jews could see nothing in Old Testament prophecy but Christ's exaltation and final power, have not the Gentiles often seen nothing but Christ's humiliation and the preaching of the gospel? If the Jews spent too much time on Christ's second advent, have not the Gentiles spent time almost exclusively on the first? If the Jews ignored the cross, have not the Gentiles ignored the crown? I believe there is only one answer to these questions. I believe that up until lately we Gentiles have been wrong about a large part of God's truth. We have clung to an arbitrary and reckless habit of interpreting First Advent texts literally and Second Advent texts spiritually. I believe we have not rightly understood all that the prophets have spoken about the second personal advent of Christ any more than the Jews did about the first. And because we have done this, we should speak of the mistakes of the disciples with tenderness and compassion. Give special attention to this point. I don't know what your opinions are about the fulfillment of the prophetic parts of Scripture, but I approach the subject with fear and trembling because I don't want to hurt the feelings of any fellow believers. But I ask you, in love, to examine your own views about prophecy. I urge you to calmly consider whether your opinions about Christ's second advent and kingdom are as sound and scriptural as those of His first disciples. Think carefully and pay attention, so that you do not commit the same error about Christ's second coming and glory as they did about His first coming and the cross. I beg you not to dismiss this subject as a curious theory of no real importance. Believe me, it affects the whole conversation between yourself and a Jew you may be trying to win to Christ. Unless you interpret the prophetic portion of the Old Testament simply and literally, you will find it difficult to carry on an argument with an unconverted Jew. You would probably tell a Jewish person that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament Scriptures, and you would refer to those Scriptures for proof. You would show him Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, 26, Micah 5, 2, Zechariah 9, 9, and Zechariah 11, 13. You would tell him that in Jesus of Nazareth those scriptures were literally fulfilled. You would urge him to believe these scriptures and receive Christ as the Messiah. All this is very good. So far you would do well. But suppose he asks if you interpret all the prophecies of the Old Testament with a simple literal meaning. Suppose he asks if you believe the Messiah will literally and personally return to reign over the earth in glory. Judah and Israel will be literally restored to Palestine, and Zion and Jerusalem will be literally rebuilt and restored. When he asks these questions, what answers will you give? Will you dare to tell him that Old Testament prophecies of this kind are not to be taken plainly and literally? Will you dare to tell him that the words Zion, Jerusalem, Jacob, Judah, Ephraim, and Israel do not mean what they seem to mean, but instead mean the church of Christ? Will you dare to tell him that the glorious kingdom and future blessedness of Zion, so often mentioned in prophecy, mean nothing more than the gradual Christianizing of the world by missionaries and the preaching of the gospel? 
Will you dare to tell him that you think it is worldly and unspiritual to take those scriptures literally, worldly to expect a literal rebuilding of Jerusalem, worldly to expect a literal coming of Messiah to reign, worldly to look for a literal gathering and restoration of Israel? Oh, if you are thinking this way, be careful. Think about what you're doing. You are putting a weapon in the hand of the unbelieving Jew, a weapon he will most likely use with irresistible power. Don't you see that you are pulling the rug out from under your own feet and supplying the Jew with a strong argument for not believing your own interpretation of Scripture? If you tell a Jewish person that it is carnal to expect the Messiah will come literally to reign, then he will reply that it is carnal to tell him that the Messiah has come literally to suffer. Don't you see that he will tell you that it is far more unspiritual for you to believe that Messiah could come into the world as a despised, crucified man of sorrows than it is for him to believe that he will come into the world as a glorious king? That is undoubtedly what he will say, and you will have no answer. You must take these things seriously. Throw aside all prejudice and view this subject with calm and logical thought. I beg you to reread these prophetic scriptures and to pray that you will not err in interpreting their meaning. Read them in the light of those two great guiding stars, the first and second advents of Jesus Christ. Associate the rejection of the Jews, the calling of the Gentiles, the preaching of the gospel as a witness to the world, and the gracious gathering out of the elect with the first advent. Connect the second advent with the restoration of the Jews, the pouring out of judgments on unbelievers, the conversion of the world, and the establishment of Christ's kingdom upon earth. Do this, and you will perhaps see a meaning and fullness in prophecy that you have not seen before. I am painfully aware that many good people do not see the subject of unfulfilled prophecy the same way that I do, and that I seem presumptuous in differing from them. But I dare not refuse anything which appears to me plainly written in Scripture. Even the best people are not infallible. I think we should remember that we must reject Protestant traditions which are not in agreement with the Bible as much as the traditions of the Church of Rome. I believe it is past time for the Church of Christ to awake out of its sleep about Old Testament prophecy. From the time of the old church fathers, Jerome and Oregon, down to the present day, men have made a harmful habit of spiritualizing the words of the prophets until their true meaning has been nearly buried. It is time to lay aside traditional methods of interpretation and to give up our blind obedience to the opinions of such writers as Poole, Henry, Scott, and Clark about unfulfilled prophecy. It is time to fall back on the principle that Scripture generally means what it seems to mean and to beware of that argument that questions ordinary beliefs that says that interpretation cannot be correct because it seems to be unspiritual. It is time for Christians to interpret unfulfilled prophecy by the light of prophecies already fulfilled. The curses on the Jews happened literally. So also will the blessings. The scattering was literal. So also will be the gathering. 
the pulling down of Zion was literal, so also will be the building up. The rejection of Israel was literal, so also will be the restoration. We need to interpret the events that will accompany Christ's second advent by the light of those accompanying his first advent. The first advent was literal, visible, personal. So also will be his second. His first advent was with a literal body. So also will be his second. At his first advent, the smallest details of the predictions were fulfilled to the very letter. So also will they be at his second. The shame was literal and visible. So also will be the glory. It is also time to stop explaining Old Testament prophecies in a way not justified by the New Testament. What right have we to say that the words Judah, Zion, Israel, and Jerusalem ever mean anything but literal Judah, literal Zion, literal Israel, and literal Jerusalem? What precedent will we find in the New Testament? Hardly any, if any at all. In his book, Prophetical Landmarks, Horatius Bonar admirably writes, There are really only two or three places in the whole New Testament, Gospels, Epistles, and Revelation, where such names are used decidedly in what may be called a spiritual or figurative state. The word Jerusalem occurs eighty times, and all of them unquestionably literal, save when the opposite is expressly pointed out by the epithets heavenly or new or holy. Jew occurs a hundred times, and only four are even ambiguous, as Romans 2.28. Israel and Israelite occur forty times, and all literal. Judah and Judea above twenty times, and all literal. It is inadequate to argue that it is impossible to carry out the principle of a literal interpretation because Christ was not a literal door or a literal branch, nor was the bread in the sacrament his literal body. When I speak of literal interpretation, I am not denying the use of figurative language. I fully admit that emblems, figures, and symbols are used in foretelling Messiah's glory as well as in foretelling Messiah's sufferings. I don't believe that Jesus was a literal root out of dry ground, or a literal lamb. Isaiah 53. What I do maintain is that prophecies about Christ's coming and kingdom foretell literal facts as truly as the prophecy about Christ being numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53.12. Prophecies about the Jews being gathered will be as literally fulfilled as those about the Jews being scattered. Neither is it valid to argue that the principle of literal interpretation deprives the church of the use and benefit of many parts of the Old Testament. I deny the justice of that charge altogether. All things written in the prophets concerning the salvation of individual souls may be used by Gentiles as freely as by Jews. The hearts of Jews and Gentiles are naturally the same. There is but one way to heaven. Both Jews and Gentiles need justification, regeneration, and sanctification. 
Whatever is written about these subjects is just as much the property of the Gentile as the Jew. Furthermore, I believe Israel as a people is a picture of the whole body of believers in Christ. Believers now may take comfort in every promise of pardon, comfort, and grace that is addressed to Israel. All believers share these in common. All I insist on is that whenever God says He will do or give certain things to Israel and Jerusalem in this world, we ought to entirely believe that to literal Israel and Jerusalem those things will be given and done. It is not a valid argument to say that many who think as I do about prophecy have said and written very foolish things, and have often contradicted one another. This may be true, but the principles for which we contend are scriptural, sound, and correct. The unbeliever does not overturn the truth of Christianity when he points to the existence of antinomians, jumpers, and shakers. The worldly man does not overturn the truth of real evangelical religion when he sneers at the differences of Calvinists and Armenians. One writer on prophecy may interpret Revelation or Daniel in one way, and another writer in another way. One man may set dates and then be proven wrong, and another may apply prophecies to living individuals and be utterly mistaken. But all these things do not affect the main issue. They do not in the least prove that the premillennial advent of Christ is not a scriptural truth, or that the principle of interpreting Old Testament prophecy literally is not a sound principle. I say once more that we ought to regard the mistakes of our Lord's disciples with great tenderness and consideration. We Christians should be the last to condemn them strongly. Great as their mistakes were, our own have been almost as bad. We have been very quick to discover the beam in our Jewish brother's eyes, and have forgotten the large speck in our own. By our arbitrary and inconsistent explanations of Old Testament prophecy, we have for a long time been putting a great stumbling block in his way. Let us do our part to remove that great obstacle. If we want to help remove the veil that prevents the Jews from seeing the cross, we need to also strip off the veil from our own eyes, and look steadily and unflinchingly at the second advent and the crown. What is the present position of our Lord Jesus Christ? The parable distinctly answers this question in the twelfth verse. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. This nobleman represents the Lord Jesus Christ in two respects. Like the nobleman, the Lord Jesus has gone into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. He has not yet received it in possession, though he has in promise. Unquestionably, he has a spiritual kingdom. He is king over the hearts of his believing people, and they are all his faithful subjects. Without controversy, he has controlling power over the world. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. By Him all things consist, and nothing can happen without His permission. But His real, literal, visible, and complete kingdom He has not yet received. To use the words of Hebrews 2, 8, We see not yet all things put under Him, 
and of Psalm 110, 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The devil is the prince of this world during the present age. John 14, 30. The majority of earth's inhabitants choose the things that please the devil far more than the things that please God. Though they may not think it, they are doing the devil's will, behaving as the devil's subjects, and serving the devil far more than Christ. This is the condition of Christian nations as well as non-Christian countries. After eighteen hundred years of Bibles and gospel preaching, there is not a nation, a country, a parish, or a long-established congregation where the devil has not more subjects than Christ. The world is not yet the kingdom of Christ. The Lord Jesus, during the present dispensation, is like David between the time of his anointing and Saul's death. He has the promise of the kingdom, but has not yet received the crown and the throne. 1 Samuel 22, 1-2. He is followed by a few, often neither great nor wise, but they are faithful people. He is persecuted by his enemies, and often driven into the wilderness, and yet his party is never completely destroyed. But he has none of the visible signs of the kingdom now, no earthly glory, majesty, greatness, or obedience. Most of mankind see no beauty in him. They don't want this man to reign over them. His people are not given honor because of their master. They walk the earth like princes in disguise. His kingdom has not yet come. His will is not yet done on earth, except by a few. It is not the day of his power. The Lord Jesus is biding his time. Grasp this truth firmly, for there are many delusions about the subject of Christ's kingdom. Be careful you are not deceived by teaching based on tradition alone. Hymns are composed and sung which darken God's teaching on this subject by using words incorrectly. Texts are wrested from their true meaning and applied to the present, texts which are not rightly applicable to any period except the period of the Second Advent. Watch for the subtle ways in which this is done. Beware beautiful poetry, whose language sneakily twists unfulfilled promises of glory and adapts them to the present dispensation. Get it straight in your mind that Christ's kingdom is still to come. His arrows are not yet sharp in the hearts of His enemies. The day of His power has not yet begun. He is gathering out a people to carry the cross and walk in His steps, but the time of His coronation has not yet arrived. But just as the Lord Jesus, like the nobleman, went to receive for himself a kingdom, so, like the nobleman, the Lord Jesus intends one day to return. The words of the angels, Acts 1.11, will be completely fulfilled. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. As his going away was a real, literal going away, so his return will be a real, literal return. As he came personally the first time with a body, so he will come personally the second time with a body. As he came visibly to this earth and visibly went away, 
so when he comes the second time he will visibly return. And then, and not until then, the complete kingdom of Christ will begin. He left his servants as a nobleman. He returns to his servants as a king. Then he intends to cast out that old usurper, the devil, to bind him for a thousand years and to strip him of his power. Revelation 20, 1-3. Then he intends to restore all of creation. Acts 3, 21. It will be the world's jubilee day. Our earth will at last produce her harvest. The king will at last reign over all the earth. The ninety-seventh psalm will finally be fulfilled and men will say, The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice. Then he intends to fulfill the prophecies of Enoch, John the Baptist, and Paul, to execute judgment upon all the ungodly inhabitants of Christendom, to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, and in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel. Jude verse 15, Matthew 3, 12, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8. Then he intends to raise his dead saints and gather his living ones, to gather together the scattered tribes of Israel, and to set up an empire on earth in which every knee will bow to him and every tongue confess that he is the Lord. How, when, where, and in what manner all these things will be, we cannot say with certainty. It is enough for us to know that they will be. The Lord Jesus has committed to doing them, and they will be done. The Lord Jesus waits for the time appointed by the Father, and then He will make all come to pass. As certainly as He was born of a pure virgin and lived thirty-three years on earth as a servant, so just as certainly he will come with clouds in glory and reign on the earth as a king. Add to the established truths of your religion that Christ is one day to have a complete kingdom in this world. His kingdom is not yet set up, but it will be set up in the day of his return. Know clearly whose kingdom it is now. It's not Christ's, but the usurper Satan's. Know clearly who will one day rule this kingdom. Not Satan, who has been ruling without right, but Jesus Christ. Know clearly that this change of power will occur when the Lord Jesus returns in person and not before. Know clearly what the Lord Jesus is doing now. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding as a high priest in the Holy of Holies for his people, adding to their number those who are being saved by the preaching of the gospel, and waiting until the appointed day of his power psalm 110:3 when he will come to bless his people and sit as a priest upon his throne zechariah 6:13 know these things clearly and you will do well if you do know and understand these things then you will not expect too much from any church minister or religious organization in this present age you will not wonder why ministers and missionaries are not converting all to whom they preach. You will not be surprised to find that while some believe the gospel, many do not. You will not be depressed when you see so many children of the world and so few children of God. You will remember that the days are evil. 
Ephesians 5.16, and that the time of universal conversion has not yet arrived. You will thank God that any are converted at all, and that while the gospel is hidden to the wise and prudent, it is revealed to babes. Pity the person who expects a millennium before the Lord Jesus returns. How can this possibly be if the world in the day of His coming is as it was in the days of Noah and Lot? Luke 17, 26-30 Know these things clearly, and you will not be confounded or surprised by the continuation of immense evil in the world. Wars, tumults, oppression, dishonesty, selfishness, covetousness, superstition, bad government, and abounding heresies will not appear to you inexplicable. You will not sink down into an unhealthy, cynical state of mind when you see laws, reforms, and education not making mankind perfect. You won't relapse into a state of apathy and disgust when you see churches full of imperfections and theologians making mistakes. You will say to yourself, The time of Christ's power has not yet come. The devil is still working among his children and sowing darkness and division among the saints. The true King is yet to come. Know these things clearly, and then you will see why God delays the final glory and allows things to go on as they do in this world. It's not that He is not able to prevent evil. He's not slack in fulfilling His promises. But the Lord is taking out for Himself a people by the preaching of the gospel. Acts 15.14 He is long-suffering to the unconverted. Scripture the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 9. Once the number of the elect is gathered out of the world, once the last elect sinner is brought to repentance, then the kingdom of Christ will be set up, and the throne of grace will be exchanged for the throne of glory. If you know these things clearly, you will work diligently to do good to people. The time is short. Scripture, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Romans 13, 12. The signs of the times call loudly and certainly for watchfulness. The Turkish Empire is fading. The Jews are cared for as they have never been before. The gospel is being preached as a witness in almost every corner of the world. If we want to save a few more people from destruction, we must work hard and lose no time. We must preach, we must warn, we must exhort, we must give money, we must spend and be spent far more than we have ever done. Know these things clearly, and you will then often look for the coming of the day of God. You will center all your hopes on the glorious and comfortable truth of the second advent. You won't merely think of Christ crucified but you will also think of Christ coming again. You will long for the days of refreshing and the manifestation of the sons of God, when the glory of Christ is revealed in them. Acts 3.19, Romans 8.19 You will find peace in looking back to the cross, and you will find joyful hope in looking forward to the kingdom. I repeat, clearly know Christ's present position. He is like one who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then to return. 
What is the present duty of all Christ's professing disciples? When I say present duty, I mean, of course, their duty between the period of Christ's first and second advents. And I find the answer in the words of a nobleman to his servants. He delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. There are few words more convicting and impressive than these four. Occupy till I come. They are spoken to all who profess and call themselves Christians. They address the conscience of those who have not renounced their baptism and formally turned their back on Christianity. They ought to provoke all who hear the gospel to examine themselves and prove whether they are in the faith. Bear with me while I try to explain why these words, which were written for your sake, are so important. The Lord Jesus tells you to occupy. By that he means that you are to be a doer of your Christianity, and not merely a hearer and professor of faith. He wants his servants to receive his wages, eat his bread, live in his house, and belong to his family. But he also wants them to do his work. You are to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Matthew 5.16. Do you have faith? It must not be a dead faith. It must work by love. Galatians 5.6. Are you elect? You are elect to obedience. 1 Peter 1.2. Are you redeemed? You are redeemed so you may be a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Titus 2.14. Do you love Christ? Prove your love to be real by keeping Christ's commandments. John 14.15. Do not forget this charge to occupy. Beware of an idle, talking, gossiping, sentimental, do-nothing religion. Don't think that because your actions cannot justify you or erase one single sin, it doesn't matter whether you do anything at all. Get rid of such a delusion. Throw it behind you as an invention of the devil. Think of the house built upon the sand and its miserable end, Matthew 7, 26-27. To make your calling and election sure, be a doing Christian. But the Lord Jesus also commands you to occupy your talent. By this he means that he has given each one of his people some opportunity to glorify him. He wants you to understand that everyone, the poorest and the richest, has his own sphere, has an open door before him, and may, if he chooses, display his master's praise. Your bodily health and strength, your mental gifts and capacities, your money, and your earthly possessions, your rank and position in life, your example and influence with others, your liberty to read the Bible and hear the gospel, and all the many ways grace is shown to you, all these are your talents. All these you are to use and employ, continually giving the glory to Christ. All these are His gifts. Riches and honor come from Him. 1 Chronicles 29.12 the silver and the gold belong to him. Haggai 2 8. Your body and your spirit are his. 1 Corinthians 6 20. 
He determines where you live, and He gives you life and breath. Acts 17.25-26 You are not your own. You are bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 Certainly it is just a small matter that He tells you to honor Him and serve Him with all that you have. Is there any man or woman who has not received anything from the Lord? Not one, I am sure. Make sure you set aside your money for the Lord's work consistently and honestly. Use well what He gives you. Take care not to bury your talent. But the Lord Jesus bids you also to occupy till He comes. By that He means that you are to do His work on earth like one who continually looks for His return. You are to be like the faithful servant who doesn't know when his master is coming home but keeps all things in order and is always prepared. You are to be like one who knows that Christ's coming is the great accounting day and to be ready to submit your account at any moment. You are not to suppose that you own anything in this world, not even a lease. The greatest and the richest of mankind is only renting with God's permission month to month. You are not to neglect any social duties or relationships because of the uncertainty of the Lord's return. You are to fill the role to which God has called you in a godly and Christian way, and you are to be ready, if the Lord chooses, to go straight from your place of business or daily activities to meet Christ in the air. You are to be like a person who never knows what a day might bring, and so you don't put things off until a better time. You are to get up and be ready in the morning, if need be, to meet Christ at noon. You are to lie down in bed at night, ready, if need be, to be awakened by the midnight cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. You are to keep your spiritual accounts in a state of constant preparation, like one who never knows how soon they may be called for. You are to make all your decisions in light of Christ's appearing, and do nothing that you would not like Jesus to find you doing. This is to occupy until Jesus comes. Think how condemning these words are to thousands of professing Christians. What a complete absence of preparation appears in their daily walk and conversation. How thoroughly unfit they are to meet Christ. They know nothing of occupying or exercising the gifts of God as loans for which they must give account. They show not the slightest desire to glorify Him with body and spirit which are His. 1 Corinthians 6.20 They show no sign of being ready for the second advent. Well, says old Gurnall, it may be written on the grave of every unconverted man, here lies one who never did for God an hour's work. It's not surprising that in a world like this a minister often cries to his congregation, Ye must be born again, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. John 3, 7, Matthew 18, 3 Think again how inspiring these words ought to be to all who are rich in this world, but do not know the right way to spend their money. Regrettably, there are many who live their lives as if Christ had never said anything about the difficulty of rich men being saved. They spend their money for their own pleasures, their own tastes, and their own families, but not for God. 
They live as if they will not have to give an account of how they spent their money. They live as if there were no judgment day in the courtroom of Christ. They live as if Christ had never said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20.35 Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not. Luke 12.33 Oh, if you are living this way, I beg you to consider what you are doing and be wise. Stop being content to give God's cause a few dollars. Give far more liberally than you have done before. Give hundreds where you now give tens. Give thousands where you now give hundreds. Then, and not until then, I will believe you are occupying as one who looks for Christ's return. Oh, how sad the covetousness and narrow-mindedness of the church in these days! May the Lord open the eyes of rich Christians. Think how instructive these words are to all who are troubled by doubts about mingling with the world and taking part in its diversions. It's useless to tell us that many of the world's amusements are not forbidden by name in Scripture. The question we should ask ourselves is simply this, Am I using my time as one who looks for Christ's return when I take part in these things? Would I be ashamed to have my Lord find me there? This is the true test by which to try all our daily activities and use of time. That thing which we would not do if we thought Jesus was coming tonight, we should not do at all. That place to which we would not go if we thought Jesus was coming this day, that place we should avoid. That company in which we would not like Jesus to find us, with those people we should never sit down. Oh, live your lives as if Christ is watching, not men or ministers or the church, but Christ. This would be occupying till He comes. But think how encouraging these words are to all who seek first the kingdom of God and who sincerely love the Lord Christ, even though the children of the world regard them as excessively holy, even though friends and family tell them they go too far with their religion. Those words, Occupy till I come, are words which justify their conduct. They can reply to their persecutors, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. I am striving to live so as to be ready when the Lord comes. I must be about my Father's business. Let me conclude by making some application. First, there is a solemn warning for everyone who hears this. That warning is that there is a great change still to come on this world, and one we ought to keep constantly in view. That change is a change of masters. That old rebel, the devil, and all his followers will be thrown down. The Lord Jesus and all his saints will be exalted and raised to honor. Scripture The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Revelation 11 15. That change is a change of manners. Sin will no longer be made light of and disguised. Wickedness will no longer go unrebuked and unpunished. Holiness will become the general character of the inhabitants of the earth. The new heavens and a new earth will be wherein dwelleth righteousness. 
2 Peter 3.13. That change is a change of opinion. There will be no more confusion about the deity, the nature, and the identity of Christ. All nations will honor the crucified Lamb of God. All men, from the least to the greatest, will know Him. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11, 9. I will say nothing about the time when these things will take place, because I object on principle to all dogmatism about dates. What I insist on is that there is a great change coming, a change for the earth, a change for man, and above all, a change for the saints. I accept the prediction that there will be in the future a great improvement and development of human nature. I believe it with all my heart. But how and when will it be brought about? Not by any system of education, not by any political legislation, not by anything short of the appearing of the kingdom of Christ. Then and only then will there be universal justice, universal knowledge, and universal peace. I accept the common phrase, There is a good time coming. I believe it with all my heart. I do believe there will one day be no more poverty, no more oppression, no more ignorance, no more grinding competition, no more covetousness. But when will that good time come? Never. Not until the return of Jesus Christ. And for whom will that good time be? For those who know and love the Lord. I accept the common phrase, There is a man coming who will set all right that is now wrong. We wait for the coming man. I believe it with all my heart. I do look for one who will unravel the tangled skein of this world's affairs and put everything in its right place. But who is the great physician for an old, diseased, and worn-out world? It is the man Christ Jesus, who is yet to return. Oh, understand this! There is a great change coming for us all, and without question, when you have been served notice that you need to leave your current home, you need to make sure you have another one to go to. Let me summarize this whole subject with a question, an invitation, and an exhortation. The question is simply this, are you ready for the great change? Are you ready for the coming and kingdom of Christ? I'm not asking what you think about controversial points of prophecy, nor your opinion about the timing of events. I am not asking if you think revelation is fulfilled or unfulfilled, if you consider the man of sin to be an individual, or if you believe prophetic days are years. About all these points, you and I may be wrong, but still be saved. The one point I want you to nail down is this. Are you ready for the kingdom of Christ? Don't tell me that by asking this I am setting too high a standard. It's pointless to tell me that a man may be a very good man but not yet be ready for the kingdom of Christ. I deny it altogether. I say that every justified and converted person is ready, and that if you are not ready, you are not a justified person. The standard I put before you is nothing more than the New Testament standard, and that the apostles would have doubted the truth of your religion if you were not looking and longing for the coming of the Lord. 
The grand end of the gospel is to prepare people to meet God. What has your Christianity done for you if it has not made you fit for the kingdom of Christ? Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. Think about this and never rest until you are ready to meet Christ. Now I offer an invitation to those who do not feel ready for Christ's return. It will be short and simple. I beg you to realize your danger and come to Christ without delay so you may be pardoned, justified, and made ready for the things to come. I plead with you to flee from the wrath to come, Matthew 3, 7, and run to the hope set before you in the gospel. I ask you on Christ's behalf to lay down hostility and unbelief and be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. I tremble when I think of the privileges and opportunities that surround you in this country and of the danger you're in if you neglect them. I tremble when I think of the possibility of Christ coming again and of you being found unpardoned and unconverted in the day of His return. It will be a thousand times better to have been born a heathen and to have never heard the gospel than to have been a member of a church but not a living member of Christ. You have had enough time to delay taking care of the condition of your soul. Wake up! Scripture Awake thou that sleepest, and Christ shall give thee light. Ephesians 5.14 Lay aside everything that stands between you and Christ. Throw away everything that pulls you back and prevents you from feeling ready for the Lord's appearing. Find out the particular sin that weighs you down and tear it from your heart, however dear it may be. Cry fiercely to the Lord Jesus to reveal Himself to you. Do not rest until you have a real, firm, and reasonable hope, and know that your feet are on the rock of ages. Do not rest until you can say, The Lord may come, the earth may be shaken, the foundations of the world may be turned upside down, but thank God I have treasure in heaven and an advocate with the Father, and I will not be afraid. Do this, and you will have gotten something from this book. Last, let me give an exhortation to all who truly know Christ and love His appearing. That exhortation is simply that you strive more and more to be a doing Christian. James 1.22 Work more and more to display the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Do everything you can to improve the gifts the Lord Jesus has given you to show His glory even better. Let your walk plainly declare that you seek a country, a homeland for eternity. Hebrews 11:14. Let your conformity to the mind of Christ be unquestionable and unmistakable. Let your holiness be so clear that even the worst enemies of the gospel cannot deny it. Above all, if you are a student of prophecy, I ask you to never let your study prevent diligent, practical application. If you believe that the day is really approaching, then work to provoke others to love and good works. If you believe that the night is almost over, be doubly diligent to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Romans 13, 12. 
There is not a greater mistake than to imagine that the doctrine of the personal return of Christ is calculated to paralyze Christian diligence. Certainly, there can be no greater spur to the servant's activity than the expectation of his master's speedy return. This is the way to attain a healthy soul. There is nothing like practicing the fruit of the Spirit for promoting our spiritual strength. There are many of God's saints who complain that they lack spiritual comfort in their religion, but the fault is altogether in themselves. Occupy, occupy, I would say to them. Zealously work for the glory of God, and these uncomfortable feelings will soon vanish. This is the way to do good to the children of the world. Nothing except God has such an effect on unconverted people as the sight of a real, thoroughly complete, live Christian. There are thousands who will not come to listen to the gospel and don't know the meaning of justification by faith, but who can understand an uncompromising, holy, consistent walk with God. Occupy, occupy, I say, if you want to do good. This is the way to promote fitness for the inheritance of the saints in light. There will be no idleness in the kingdom of Christ. The saints and angels there will wait on their Lord with unwearied activity and serve him day and night. It is a fine saying of Bernard that Jacob in his vision saw some angels ascending and some descending, but none standing still. Occupy, occupy, I say again, if you want to be thoroughly trained for your glorious home. Oh, fellow believers, it would be so good if we could see how much it is for our benefit and happiness to use every penny God gives us in living and striving to be near to God. When we live like this, we will find great joy in our work, great comfort in our trials, great doors of usefulness in the world, great consolation in our sicknesses, and great hope in our death. Leave great evidence behind us when we are buried, have great confidence in the day of Christ's return, and receive a great crown in the day of reward.